many Sanskrit words are simply not translatable. This non-translatability of key Sanskrit words attests to the non-digestibility of many Indian traditions. Holding on to the Sanskrit terms and thereby preserving the complete range of their meanings becomes a way of resisting colonization and safeguarding Dharmic knowledge. So this is very interesting. So could you tell us how Sanskrit can help us protect our civilization? You know, every, every civilization has words which are unique. Right. I mean, Eskimos, someone told me, they have dozens of words for ice. Uh, ice, snow, when it's melting, when it's falling, large, uh, you know, iceberg is a name for it, small bit of ice has got a different name for it. So all kind of forms of ice got name because, you know, they're so much into that. So they know a lot about it. If you take all those words and collapse it and reduce it into some English word called ice, it's not fair to them because there is a lot of nuance and context in when they talk about a certain kind of ice, it means something to them. Similarly, you know, Arabs have words, I'm sure, Chinese have words. And you know, the English language has some French words which they don't translate and different people bring their words which they don't want to be translated. There's no reason we can't Sanskritize English. So, we should Sanskritize English. Uh, I'll give you some examples. If you take Atman, yeah. our gurus are always calling it soul. Yeah. But you know, soul animals don't have. Yeah. Atman even, uh, even the little ant has and plant has. Yeah. yeah. So, you can't make soul out of that. And then, uh, you know, soul doesn't reincarnate. Yeah. Live, the, the whole metaphysics of soul, where it came from, is different, where it's going after death, going to heaven, hell, living there. There is no reincarnation of the soul. Yeah. There is no concept of karma that will that is attached uh, to this jivatma and it will follow from life to life. They don't have that. Yeah. So, soul doesn't have the properties of atma. Yeah. And atma doesn't have the properties of soul. So, therefore, though each means some idea of self, but it's it's a very different idea of self. You know, so you could say, well, soul means self and Atman means self. But that's like saying, you know, apple is a fruit and orange is also fruit, you know. Yeah. So they must be the same. I mean, they're both round and maybe they, and they both grow on trees yeah. and they both have some juice. That's common, but there's so much difference also. Two things can be identical only if every single aspect is the same, yeah. not if there's some overlap. Yeah. So obviously soul and Atman have some overlap, but a lot of important differences. And so, and you know, the relationship of soul with God is very different than the relationship of Atman with Brahman. This is a very important topic. You know, Shakti, yeah. you can't uh, translate as energy yeah. because Shakti is intelligent. Right. Electricity is just a material thing. Uh, it's not just power, right. but uh, Shakti is intelligent. Shakti is conscious. Right. Shakti is a female. Shakti has got this, uh, it's, it's power, energy, conscious intelligence, all of that, it's not just energy. Right. So, you know, you are reducing the meaning when you say, when you replace Shakti with energy. Right. This is so true of so many uh, words of ours. The modern Indian English writers feel very proud that they brought yeah. some words like, you know, Alu Gobi right. or something like that. But that's a stupid, that's not relevant in terms of a deep meaning. Exactly. It's a physical object. And if you have physical object, uh, that you can call it apple or you can call it anything, that's translatable right. because that object is well defined. The object is not destroyed, modified, distorted by calling it something else. But the idea of Atman is distorted when you tra map it onto uh, soul because the meaning changes. Right. If the meaning doesn't change, 
it's translatable. So I have lot of argument on the in, on the uh, social media. People saying, "Oh, you know, you're contradicting yourself and whatnot." If an object is well defined and its meaning does not change when you translate it, that is not there is no non-translatable required. You, that's okay to translate. Right. But if if a certain entity is such that its meaning is captured in Sanskrit and the English equivalent is different and distorts it, that is non-translatable. So, uh, identifying Sanskrit non-translatables uh, should be a very big project to protect our, uh, protect our heritage. Right. There are two problems in this. One is replacing the Sanskrit non-translatable with some English equivalent and therefore distorting it. Yes. Second is where you adopt the word, Sanskrit word, but you adopt it with a distorted meaning. Right. So, for example, the word Pandit. Now, yeah. there is Wall Street Pandit. Yeah, there is car sales pandit, some website where the car auto sales pandit will advise you. So, pandit has become a distorted, the word is brought in, but not the correct meaning. Exactly. Yeah, uh, even yog becoming Christian yog. So, you are yeah. using the word, but not in its correct meaning. Right. It is not enough to just keep the Sanskrit non-translatable word intact, but also its meaning. Meaning. I've also learned that Sanskrit has influenced Western linguistics to a great ex extent. Yes. Could you throw some light on that? You know, there wasn't a serious, rigorous, advanced grammar of any European languages okay. until in the 1800s they started a serious study of Sanskrit. They discovered Panini, they discovered the whole tradition, the, the relationship between sound and meaning, you know, or the, the philosophy. They discovered that of the of Sanskrit has a philosophy behind it, right. uh, and and the rigor of the of the grammar. So they started studying Sanskrit in a very serious way all over Europe from the year eighteen hundred onwards. Every major European university started Sanskrit departments. Often they downsized the Latin and Greek departments, right. which is their own classical languages, because for a while they thought that Sanskrit is maybe their heritage. They wanted to, that's how they came up with this Aryan theory, you know, right. that maybe, you know, they are the Sanskrit people and they brought it to us and so on. So, they were very arrogant and very chauvinistic and very proud. So, they were furiously studying Sanskrit all over Europe. Mm -hmm. Germany, France, Britain started studying and other countries also. So, they, in the process, they learned so much from our Shastras. Many ideas which became part of Western thought, Western liberalism are of Indian origin from the study of Sanskrit and the Shastras. Okay. And one of the things was the study of linguistics. So, they developed grammars. Oh. And in uh, the 1800s and in, until the early 1900s, if you went for a PhD in linguistics, in Harvard, in Oxford, in Heidelberg, in any of these places, you were required to take uh, courses in Sanskrit as a prerequisite oh. because you could, not learn, you could not study linguistics unless you knew Sanskrit grammar. But then they later did the digestion. Uh, Sanskrit grammar got digested into Western grammar. Okay. And that's the birth of linguistics. Now, this is very interesting. There's a field called computational linguistics. Okay. You're a computer scientist. So, that's where computer scientists are studying, they started by studying Sanskrit grammar, right. Panini's grammar, right. to uh, take language and understand it like why these AI systems, artificial intelligence yeah. systems are so good at understanding what you are saying. So, yeah. they, this, this is the natural language processing yeah. and computational linguistics. And this field developed in the last 10-15 years using 
by carefully data by carefully mining understanding and digesting Panini's grammar. Okay, so now there are these Microsoft, all these people have yeah. uh, translators. So you speak in you speak in uh, uh, English and it'll put out uh, Spanish, oh. or you speak in uh, you know some one language it'll put out another language. And I have uh, you have these uh, you can even speak and it'll uh, print it out, type it up for you. Okay. This language translation from X language to Y uh, or, uh, is often being done by a linguistic engine. So they take the language you're speaking or writing and map it to a Paninian engine and then they output it in the other language. So this, this natural language processing, we're not getting credit for it and it's all, yeah. it, it's based on the study of Sanskrit. Uh, now, in the process of doing this, they've actually distorted some of Sanskrit and then they are putting this distorted Sanskrit back into India. So they are not able to accept all the accents all the pronunciations, intonations which are important in Sanskrit. In Sanskrit, the intonation and emphasis of a word is very important. You change that, you could change the meaning. But that's nuance the uh, Western people didn't want to deal with because they don't need it. It's not applicable to them. So this natural language processing and computational linguistics has also damaged Sanskrit in a subtle way. So this is an example of digestion. And we are not even being acknowledged for that. Not even being acknowledged. Our own Sanskrit scholars have sold out. They would not have been able to do it without the help of our Sanskrit okay. scholars. So a lot of, I don't want to name people because they are also my friends. I argue with them privately. Right. They are in important universities, the famous Indian universities, big universities, Sanskrit departments. They are there okay. and they have been selected. They go for a conference to Paris, they go to London, they go to US and they are wined and dined and they feel very happy, they are looked after. Uh, you know, the good life, yeah. they give a nice uh, treatment and they're very happy. They tell me, Nay Rajiv ji, they're very nice, they're very nice to me, they respect us and uh, they're doing all that drama. They'll yeah. even allow them to do, you know, light a lamp and all that stuff. Right. They're, they're symbolically, yeah. they're very polite to you, but they are sucking the knowledge out. Right. So it's good for his personal good, but not for the civilization. It is, he's course. selling out the civilization, but does not want to deal with it. Right. People with English honors, are very proud whether they know postmodernism. That's the fashion. Postmodernism origin comes from post-structuralism. Okay. okay. And post-structuralism was the result of structuralism. So there was something called structuralism, then it evolved into post-structuralism, and then that evolved into postmodernism. All this happened in the 20th century. Right. The person considered the father of structuralism was a Frenchman. Ferdinand Sassour, okay. uh, who was a French guy who, who was a Panini Sanskrit scholar. Okay. So his PhD dissertation in France was on Panini and all his life he taught Panini grammar, Panini linguistics, Panini theory of meaning and all that stuff. When he died, his students took the class notes, published it in his name and that book became, the title is Structuralism. Wow. So, Sanskrit digested by this guy and his students is the origin of structuralism and then that led to post-structuralism and that led to postmodernism. Try going to one of these postmodernist kind of people and tell him that you know you're hating Sanskrit but that's the origin of your field right. and they just don't like it. They won't, they won't talk to you and they'll call you saffron and this and that right. and try to accuse you personally, yeah. attack you personally right. but they're not able to, you should look up Ferdinand Sassur 
and you will find out that uh, you know it, it is acknowledged that oh he knew Sanskrit but they don't they don't want to acknowledge the extent of it right. actually that is what he knew he was teaching he was a Sanskrit professor and his whole PhD was in Sanskrit. His entire work was in Sanskrit. And so this idea of structuralism is basically a westernized uh, adaptation of some Sanskrit principles. And I think it's more fashionable to learn French nowadays yes. in India over Sanskrit. <laughs> <laughs> and it's fashionable to use postmodernism to condemn Sanskrit. Oh. <laughs> that, imagine that's that. That's the base. Yeah.